1: Peter, one of my friends occasionally derisively refers to my former newspaper as a first draft of history. The other day on, one, on the ABC somebody was talking about what they're talking about next door, the situation of Nauru, and they're saying it's just one television story away from bubbling over and becoming the scandal of the hour, in somewhat the same manner that the story of the month so far has probably been the Four Corners story about uh, children in custody in Darwin. Now you've been a vital part of a process, not of, if you like, necessarily being the first draft of history, but the person, the eyewitness who's given us our first impressions of a good deal of the world history that's been happening around us in the past um, Or ten years or so, Mm. and including some very momentous things going on in your beat, the Arab Spring, the tectonic movements in the Middle East, some of which, of course, are perpetual, like uh, uh, Arab-Israeli, but also Mm Sunni-Shia, the rise of ISIS, the rise of terror, more thing. Just if you might, just sort of start a bit about about how you see it as being a witness, and to some extent being our witness, to these sorts of events.
2: Well, uh, first of all, uh, it's a real privilege to be here. It's quite humbling that so many of you might want to come here and listen to me talk tonight, so thank you very much for coming. I'm sure there's there's lots of um, exciting things that you could also do. Um, So it's very nice to be here and talk to you this evening. I was very lucky in that, um, after my, my footballing career failed miserably. Um, The only other thing I was good at was English, was writing stories, and so it was a very easy decision to figure out what my alternative occupation would be, and that was to be a, a reporter. And as it turned out, I was sent away as a foreign correspondent in 2008, and right at that time, the world was changing because Barack Obama was about to be elected president, so that was a really fun time to be in the United States. So I saw that campaign and I saw that inauguration. And it was just this wave of goodwill and this, this wave of hope that quickly came crashing to a halt. And and the Arab Spring was, was right at the start of that. And what a momentous event that was. And, uh, and I'd only just moved to Europe, uh, based out of London, just before that happened.
1: Did you get infected by that hope yourself?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... Uh, You'd come off the George W. Bush years, you know, it was, it was Mm. flat, America was flatlining. You know, I remember the the GFC and, uh, you know, the the, the America wasn't a great place to live. And, um, and, and, and so this, this new guy comes in and he's promising this change and he's promising this hope. And, you know, he had the silver tongue he knew how to, you know, turn um, a flat crowd into, into something that was so joyous. And, uh, and I felt lucky to be part of that. But then, little by little, it sort of chipped away, you know, and, uh, and then you had the Arab Spring, which, which I still find, out of all the things that I've done, is probably the biggest event that I, that I got to cover because it's still happening today. You know, we, we've still got the after effects of it today with Syria. Now, Tunisia was the first one, the first domino to fall. Mm-hmm. The president, after 17 days, I think, if I remember rightly, um, the Tunisian revolution, that was a quick one. Then Egypt caught the bug and Hosni Mubarak was down. Then it moved to Libya, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi was under threat, so you've got all these dictators who've been in charge of these Middle Eastern and North African nations have been in charge for decades and all of a sudden people are rising up and it was, it, first of all, it was amazing, you know, that, 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 that people were able to do that. And, and taking so
1: did, on whole armies and organised police and they're, forces.
2: They're, And they wouldn't be stopped by a bullet, you know, we usually, they would be too afraid to show any kind of dissent, you know, if someone was critical of a regime in Tunisia or Egypt or, or anywhere really, um, they'd be thrown in jail, locked up. So here you go, you got one, two, three, four, dozens, hundreds on mass, you know, assembling in these, in these main squares of these, of these great capitals of North Africa and the Middle East and, and defying a regime. And ultimately successful. Now, didn't turn out so well because you've got people like Hosni Mubarak, the Egyptian president, you've got Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, you've got Saddam Hussein to an extent as well, um, who said before they were ousted, You get rid of me, you've got a problem here, you know, mm-hmm. because chaos will reign. No president Assad is saying the same thing now. Assad's saying the same thing chaos mm-hmm. will reign. Well, we didn't believe it. You know, you can't keep, you know, squashing people. You know, you can't keep doing that. So we all thought at the time that this movement is happening, so we're going to support it. When I say we, I say most Western governments. So the Western governments got involved in a way, ousted the leaders, and now look at the places. You know, you would argue, some will argue that it's even worse. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people in the places where I went, in Libya, uh, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Iraq, they say the, the place is worse now. You know? and So I, I talk about this in the book. I prompt the question, you know, what do we do now if this happens in the future? Do we get involved, you know, bearing in mind what's happened here? Yeah. So having to cover that to get back to the question, uh, it, it yeah. was just um, there were so many tentacles to the story. And as a reporter, I felt privileged to be an Australian voice on that sending our stories back to an Australian
1: audience. Um, yes, just going back to the, the sort of the wave of hope... And yeah, what, sorry. I, I no, 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 no. We'll stay I? on our feet. <laughs> the, uh, the, it had been a great article of faith with uh, Cheney and with Bush that with the toppling of Saddam, there would not just be the rise of glorious democracy in Iraq itself, but it would be like a virus mm. sp- spreading right across... Um, mm. Um, Africa, the Middle East, and even into yeah. the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. Um, did we let them down?
2: Oh, that's hard. That's hard to say. Uh, I think I think the West underestimated exactly what what would happen. Yeah. You know, it's not such a simple thing turning a dictatorship into a democracy. It can't. It can't happen. You know, well, not not so easily. I think the last one to happen successfully was in Spain the 70s or the 80s, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. There might have been another one, but, um, but, but, but that's, that's not easy because once someone who's been in charge of a country for, for 30, 20, 30, 40 years, suddenly he's gone, now you've got all these other people who live in the outer areas, these people who have all of a sudden, they can become president too, yeah. but there's not just one, there's, there's a number of them and so that's how these splits occur. And, and, it, and, it, and the country breaks up unfortunately, you know, and now you've got somewhere like Libya where the Islamic State are, are trying to, to make it a base of North Africa, you know, a place in Sirte, which was, the, which was where Colonel Gaddafi was born, you know, that was his tribal home. Now it's become something of a, of a stronghold up until recent days for, for Islamic extremists.
1: Yep. Um, now take us through a little bit of the mechanics right you've decided that you've got to be in Egypt it's yeah. a place where things are happening how do you get there tell us okay. about fixes yeah, and okay. all of that so, sort uh, of thing
2: so when we go into a place um, so you uh, and a uh, cameraman uh, me and my cameraman we, we, we don't have the budget of a, of a big overseas organization like CNN or BBC <laughs> it's just a two-man crew it's me and a cameraman and uh, and we, we, um, in the early days, I was probably a bit green because um, I, I wasn't aware that you really needed a, a translator or, uh, or any kind of, <laughs> any kind of uh, security consultant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just went in and, um, and quickly realised that, uh, that I wasn't really getting far with, uh, with, with my cameraman, both of us, we didn't speak a word of Arabic and most people in that region at, at that point didn't speak much English, so we weren't really getting that far. So I had to phone, what we do is when we go to a place we find we phone, phone Reuters um, or the Associated Press. These places usually have offices or Al Jazeera, sometimes you can, you can bring people who you, you have no affiliation with and they like to help you out. So you call them up and you say, we need, I need a fixer. I need, a fixer is someone who, as the title suggests, that they fix things for you. They, they translate. They they help you out. They go and they go and source contacts for you. They they find stories for you. They find drivers for you. They f- they fix things for you. They they make you mobile. You're able to work, right? And also, if you get yourself into trouble, they can get you out of trouble. Mm. Fingers crossed, anyway. And so, they probably get shot first. Yeah, and that's right. You know, they do put their lives on the line for us as well. Mm. And that's happened on more than one occasion. But. Um, so, so once, once that phone call is made, they give us a contact, we touch base with them, and uh, and, and off we go. We, pa- we pay them anywhere between two to $500 US a day to help us out, um, depending on how dangerous the situation is at the moment. They'll also find us a driver who we pay another $100 a day, um, and they sort us out and, 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 and help us into hotels, or help us in, in into, into some place to stay. And then we talk about what the stories are, you know, and they'll say, right, this is going on here, this is going on over here, we've got to drive two hours down here if you want to talk to this guy, he's someone important, you might get a good angle here, those kinds of things. So, so that's basically how that works and on and on that goes for however long you're there. Um, and in Egypt, I was there for, for a good couple of weeks, in Libya, I was in for a couple of months, um, and in Gaza, a few weeks, so, um, and that's a few weeks at a time because this day and age, the nature of the news business is that thing, people get their news so quickly on phones these days that a story is hot for a shorter and shorter amount of time mm-hmm. because something bigger comes along, something more important comes along, and so you slide down the news rundown, and then once that happens, they start to pack you up and tell you to go back home, and you end up going back there another time. But, um, so, so generally, you're only there these days for about two weeks or so. And, and you keep your contacts on file. So if you go back there again, you call the same fixer and say, righto, let's do business again, and away we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your talk about
1: translation problems reminds me of a story going back into the early 60s with Edward Bear, who worked for Newsweek, but going into Katango during the crisis in the Congo. There, a whole group of Western journalists arriving via plane on the, on the airstrip, which was already choked with refugees. And somebody yelling out, has anyone here been raped and speaks English? Oh. Okay. There's a book of that title. Right.
2: <laughs> That's the title. What? Okay, yes. Yeah, right. No, I, haven't, I didn't experience anything like that. But yes. uh, no. yeah. A certain want of taste. Yeah, um, exactly. PC-ness. And, <laughs> just, uh, and just so you know, too, so, so I'm in a TV business, so obviously I'll let you know the kit that we take in. So generally it's a camera, there's a tripod, there's a small bag that has lights, um, microphones, and a little portable satellite dish because if you're in a conflict, the first thing to go down is going to be uh, your internet access. So we've got a satellite dish called a BGAN and, uh, and what we're able to do is you open it up and you find your satellite coordinates and then you're able to plug your computer into the BGAN, it's very small, it's about the size of a laptop computer, and uh, and this, find the satellite signal and you can we can send our stuff back to Australia. Um, that 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 is the most expensive way to do things too that's about costs about fifteen hundred dollars to to send one one minute thirty story back to to sydney and then they broadcast it here but you've got no other option so you've got to do it
1: but as you've demonstrated several times in this book of course the first thing that going through any sort of border post or dealing with any unfriendly cops or soldiers or anything like that is that they'll try yeah. and, and seize your gear from you yeah and so a good deal of the work still as in foreign foreign corresponding going back hundreds of years is scrabbling with what you've got
2: absolutely yeah you've got to improvise yeah yeah and, uh, and one example of this that happened in egypt once it also happened in iraq in 2014 as uh, as Islam- islamic state militants were closing in on the capital you know and they, and they want baghdad they're, they're not going to get baghdad but, but they want it yes. uh, and it won't stop them from trying but uh, at this particular point they were they were about 50 kilometers outside the capital. So it looked like they were going to have a, have a pretty good run at things. So we felt it was it was important that we we went there. So we flew from London, flew from London into Amman in Jordan, and we picked up our, our visas. And you need a lot of visas to operate in Baghdad these days. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated place and it's very, very tense. It's, it's, a, it's an intimidating environment because of the wars that have happened there in recent years. So you need visas that can cost you anywhere between five and ten thousand dollars US just to film in certain neighborhoods. And there's a lot of different neighborhoods in Baghdad, so that can end up costing you 50 grand for all these different visas. And you know, we don't have that kind of money. So we've got to wing it. So as usual, we, we flew into Baghdad and this is my first time and, uh, and we decided to wing it and not pay anything. And then as soon as we arrived, well, we lost the whole lot. <laughs> the big camera, the tripod, the lights, everything. It was all gone. Fortunately, I had a, a fairly industrious uh, and clever cameraman by the name of Ben Williamson who, who ended up getting locked up in, in Lebanon recently with 60 minutes, but uh, that's another story. Um, he, uh, he came in with me, he's a lovely bloke. He came in with me and, uh, and sort of said, oh, I had a feeling this might happen. So, cause I said, man, how are we gonna, are we gonna operate here now? I can't do, can't do a thing. And he goes, I've, I've got this little GoPro. And most of you have seen GoPros, right? These tiny little cameras—they're all the rage now. You strap them to your chest or your head, or, and they give you, you know, a different, a different take on on videos. So Ben brought in uh, one GoPro, and that is all we used for our week in Baghdad, um, filming around the capital as Islamic State. <laughs> militants were closing in and he's just shooting off this little thing, <laughs> you know, it's so small it looked ridiculous, <laughs> but no one at home would have known, and that's, that's the advantage that we've got these days, you know, technology, it's an amazing thing.
1: I first cited this as a phenomenon, and if I cited it, it was already 5, 10 years old, I've got to tell you, but it was during the first Iraq war in 91, 92, but you started to see journalists standing there and the first thing you would see would be them shuffling a little bit. And then they'd say, I'm out here in the desert in Kuwait. The tanks are running beside me and whatnot. And it would be like grainy pictures, like 1956 Australian television or whatnot, but you would vaguely see tanks chundering off in some direction. But the very graininess of it, lent a certain versimilitude to it. What this shuffling business was about was that the person was looking at his laptop where he had a little hundred dollar camera on the top of his laptop but he could actually see himself framed in it and whether he was in or out of frame. But we've moved from that, not just to what you're describing, but to a situation, we'll go back to Egypt now for Mm. a second where, as with the revolution in Russia, people are describing it as, if you like, the Facebook revolution. Mm -hmm. People are talking about how, in spite of the tremendous power that the state can bring on citizens, the fact that people can text Mm -hmm. each other, take photographs with each other, or whatnot brings enormous power into it, and even allows journalists otherwise shut out of the action. Mm some scope to get a story out that the state can't stop.
2: That's right. That, that happened uh, in Egypt and also Libya. You're right. They did call it the Facebook revolution because uh, the governments are really caught napping in this regard because they weren't able to stop the flow of pictures. You know, usually in a, in a dictatorship, one of the first things to go is, is freedom of speech so you, you can't get your own And the phone lines go down The Phone something. lines go down, but, uh, but Facebook, Twitter, uh, that was was a vital cog in in the machine of the islamic state because uh sorry the arab spring because um, because the world was able to see what was going on and we're talking we're not just talking you know a a person shot here or a a person shot there these were these were whole groups of people who were mowed down by snipers walking up the street you know just spraying people with gunfire and uh, it was extraordinary to see and it was extraordinary to see the bravery of, of the people, the protesters, the freedom fighters that they that they ended up being called, just standing there and taking it and not saying no. Yeah. And so the people outside of the Middle East were looking at this, and you know, I get goosebumps talking about it. They, you know, it was like we we got to do something about this. You know, this is not on. Yep. And so that was that was that was what happened throughout the Arab Spring. It happened in Syria too. It still happens in Syria now. That's that's the only reason the only way a lot, not all of it, but a lot of the pictures are able to get out from places such as Aleppo and, and, and what have you. And Gaza. And Gaza, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, Ga- Gaza was was uh, was was different. I've, I've done Gaza three times of the war in 2009, 2012 and 2014 in the 2009 they didn't let the Israeli um, military, or the government didn't let any Western journalists into Gaza. There was maybe one or two who who were lucky enough to be there beforehand who'd been living there. And they they, they were heavily criticised. The Israelis were heavily criticised for not allowing us in there because we could only report from the Israeli side. So therefore, we were only really getting one side of the story. So the next time the war rolled around, they said, okay, if you want to go in there? Go in there. You die though, that's not our problem. Mm So they let us, as whoever wanted to go in. So you got dozens of the world media that were going across. And uh, I remember, <laughs> it, was, it was about to be my birthday, uh, my 31st birthday, I think, and um, I was at the, uh, the passport control and uh, the, the lady looked at my passport and she looked up at my face and she looked down at my passport and she said, I see it's gonna be your birthday in two days. And I said, yes, that's right, she goes, well, at least you'll get your own fireworks. So <laughs> <laughs> at that point where I thought, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? As ro- rockets were flying over the you know over the buildings and whatnot. So anyway, that was that. But in that we didn't get comp- gear confiscated. They were happy for us to go. And uh, and and one of the security guards it was a nice enough chap. Uh, as we as we moved across the no no man's land in between Israel and Gaza, and they said, please. Uh, when possible, have press on your flak jacket yeah. and have TV written on the bonnet of your car in tape. I said, what's that for? And they said, so the drone's can see you, so we know where you are. Yeah. If you don't have that on, then, then we can't be sure that you'll, you'll make it out all right.
1: Yeah. Mm. Just speaking of some of this, um, life becomes very concentrated, bullets whizzing, noises, things. There are also long periods, interminable car journeys on rutted mm. roads, waiting at border posts. I think it was Eric Ambler who once sort of said that the thing that's wrong with most spy novels is that all the sort of the James Bondy sort of action and whatnot, if anything like that happens, um, is concentrated in just seconds yeah. of time. The real agony of working out whether you can get across a border. Mm, yeah. Um,
2: yeah, no, you can wait for days. Yes. You know, we waited for days sometimes to get across a border. Um, I remember I remember it was a real problem getting into Libya when, when the Libyan Revolution was underway, because understandably thousands of people were trying to get out at the same time, but that's that's pretty much the scene that we faced wherever we went. We were always flying in somewhere that most people were trying to run away from. It's funny that, isn't it? But, Did you have um, to
1: learn a certain sort of um, yeah. humility yep. and yeah. Uh, yeah. passivity to, to countervail the sort of certain gung honess and yes. whatnot?
2: And also uh, having a fixer can speed that process right up. Yeah. So in the early days when I tried to be you know thought I knew it all, yeah. and I could go by myself. Yeah. Nah, took me hours, days even. St- you're staying there and you're seeing your opposition go through and. And they got a few days head start and I start shaking my head going, I'm an idiot, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now think of something like Gaza, or if you like, being in the Ukraine, you can hardly be there without really forming a view about things. Mm. That's not quite the view of, if you like, the wave of enthusiasm that's following a popular revolution, wherever that's going to end up. Now, as a journalist, you're trying to tell it straight. Yes. Yes and so forth. But, say, Gaza. Mm. It's a seemingly intractable problem. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for ages. Mm-hmm. You've seen it before, you've seen it again. It gets more horrible every mm. time perhaps, mm-hmm. or something like that. But do you come out of it, if you like, you know, depressed, all uh, the time. angry, all the time, <laughs> really yeah. wanting to uh, kick somebody?
2: Well, for a, for a few different reasons there. I mean, first of all, you I always tried to be fair. It's, 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 yeah. it's at the heart of what we, what we do. We present two arguments and, and you let the viewer or the reader decide for themselves what they make of it all. Yeah. But in a place like Gaza, when it's, it's, it's slaughter, really, on an industrial scale, you've got the, 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 the arithmetic of war was about 20 dead Palestinians to one dead Israeli. Um, and it's hard to be able to balance that up when I'm looking over here and I'm seeing a, a seven-year-old child dead on the floor, two, two more of them there, and you know, another yep. dozen people dead over there and, and that affects you very much. Um, and I always tried to go in and see the worst of it. I wanted to see the worst of it because that's where the truth of it all is. Yes. And so that, that, that is the challenge, that can, that can be a challenge. Um, but um, you've, you've, got to, you've still got to try. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've still got to try, but uh, and there, that's that's one part of the answer to that question. The second part of the answer is that it's was very difficult leaving because as journalists, we're able to parachute into a place, yes you know, and you can spend one or two weeks there, and then you can leave again. The people that you're reporting on, they can't. They've got to stay there and they've got to deal with it and pick up the pieces long after the world's media attention is gone. They're stuck there and they've got to deal with rebuilding, you know, and a lot of them have lost family members, some of them even whole families, you know. There's one one fella I was talking to who lost ten, 10 members of his own family in one bomb blast. So I think of these people all the time. So when I'm leaving, and especially our fixers who put their own lives in danger to keep us alive, yes. well they gotta stick they gotta stay behind. So I always wonder hope that they're all right, you know, but uh there's a real sense of loss that I have and that's what we call a decompression when I come back from from a heavy place. It's not so easy to slip back into society. It's not easy for me, anyway. So you, I sort switch off, and I can't really talk to people for days. I sort of sit at home and and watch movies, and, and just I don't want. I'm not interested in having any kind of conversation. Yeah. You know, because there is an injustice. It's wars unfair. War's, mm. wars unfair. You know, it's pointless too. You know, but it happens, and it's going to keep on happening. And, you know, you've got the Gaza-Israeli conflict is another one, you know. It's, uh, it's been happening for years, and it's going to keep on happening because the same set of problems, it's all cyclical, comes around and around again. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's, that's the real sadness of it all in, in that part of the world, the, the differences are never solved.
1: Now, whether you agree with it or not, there's a certain similar sort of logic to the intractable, inevitable... But ceaselessly horrible reign of terror. That's whether it's taking place in a Norway or a Paris or as much as anything in in the Middle East itself um, and whatnot. But that you know this cyclical violence Mm -hmm. and counter violence and so forth. Stretch your sort of thinking about that. About you know as a foreign correspondent covering Europe, you go to a Paris or something like that where there's been a massacre, Mm. and compare that if you like, with a Gaza?
2: Well, the, the, the devastation is not as absolute uh, in, yeah. in, in, you know, you've got, you've got somewhere like Gaza that is, uh, that, is, that is, they call it the world's biggest open-air prison because, you know, the Palestinians are locked in there basically and the buildings aren't, you know, they're not made that well and it's, a lot of places are like that in, in, uh, across the Middle East. Um, not, not all of it, but a lot of it, and it's flimsy and it can be damaged very easily. But you go to a place yep. in Europe and there's a terror attack there, and as tragic as, as it all is, it's, it's usually in, the, in a concentrated area and, and you know, the, the rebuilding effort does not take anywhere near as long. Yep. But, but in terms of, 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 of death, yep. there's not much of a difference. It's the same thing. You know, yep. it doesn't matter where you are, it's, it's still awful to see and pointless and mindless and yeah, it is, yeah. difficult and to it, explain what or end, justify. What I mean, I remember it uh, in, in, the, in the, uh, the Oslo massacre and this, this used to irritate me from an editorial point of view because they stopped calling it, a lot of the media stopped calling the Oslo massacre a terror attack because Anders Breivik was not Muslim, It was not a Muslim extremist and sometimes that happens even today and, and I'm of the opinion that no matter where you're from, if you are causing terror then you are a terrorist. Yes, quite right. And uh, and so, you know, I I, always remember being in Oslo and seeing the kids' body bags being pulled off Utoya Island, you know, um, when they'd been shot dead by Anders Breivik, and it was just as awful as being in Gaza or being anywhere else where there were dead bodies, you know, it's just, what for? Yeah. You know? Yep. So...
1: You say several times in the book that there were times when it, if you like, began to sort of become all the same. Yes, yes you know, a feeling, I've been here before, or yeah. I've done this. Yeah, well,
2: uh, oh. that, that kind of relates um, to, um, first of all, w- when when you've been in a place for, for a little while, for a couple of weeks, the pictures start to look the same. Yes. So they have less punch um, when 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 we send them back to our, our editors and our <coughs> chiefs in, in Australia. And that's fine. That's always been the way. Um, but when that happens, that's when you start dropping down the rundown because the pictures do start to look the, look the same. So you've got to really be creative and, 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 and you need the help of your fixer to try and find something that hasn't been seen before. Otherwise they could pack you up and send you home. Yes, you know, That's how it goes. And, uh, and, and of course, um, a lot of the wars that are taking place at the moment, the, the pictures are quite similar. You know, whether mm. you're in the Middle East or whether you're in Europe, seen it all and you know all you need is a couple of rockets and a couple of tanks around and it doesn't matter where you are yeah. it could be anywhere you know
1: but if you believe in what you're doing or if you believe that the matter's mm. really important mm. and you believe that it should be on the australian news oh, agenda yeah, I fight for it yeah, yeah. You, know,
2: you know i fight for it sometimes but does you know, it
1: mean more risk taking
2: sometimes yeah yeah i mean i remember uh when it was 2013 i think this is when um the fellow who replaced Hosni Mubarak uh, was a fellow named Mohammed Morsi yeah. uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood. So he became a, a, the, new, the next president of Egypt. And after the initial waves of euphoria and goodwill, similar to Obama, I mean, the, the Egyptians had won their revolution, but, but very soon he started, he started cracking down pretty hard on the Egyptian people. And they didn't like that very much. Yeah. So they started camping out again. And then one evening, there was an order Um, after Mohammed Morsi had been ousted from office and the um, the military was in control. uh, There were hundreds of people who were mowed down on the street, it was a massacre, it was a cold blooded massacre. And this was when uh, a friend of mine, his name is Mick Dean, he was a cameraman from Sky News. Uh, He was was shot dead by a sniper. And um, that spooked the hell out of us. And my boss said to me, and I called him up from London. And I said, I've got to go here. This is this is huge. Yeah. I've got to go. This is a big story. And he's like, I don't I don't like this. I yeah. don't want you to go here. And I said, I've got to go. This is a big story. I've got to go. So he said, right. Well, deal is you have to take more care than you usually do. If you do that, mm. you can go. So I ended up, you know, we, we, we did what we had to do. Um, but you know, that's 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 an example of of pushing it. You know, you can push it if you put up a good argument. Um, Unfortunately he's the one who's paying the bills.
1: Come to that, come to that.
2: (laughs) So I've got to do what he says.
1: We're living in a day when the media model has changed. In the newspaper game I'm particularly conscious of it and it's not as yet hitting as hard on television but the profits are down, Mm. the capacity of newspapers or television shows or uh, modern uh, social media or anything like that to invest Time, energy, bodies mm. into stories is declining. Mm-hmm. There's, again, another incident in the book where the overall boss, I think, remarks to you that uh, you're not insured at yeah. the moment. Yeah, no, David Gingell. Yeah, <laughs> yes. so... Um, he was but joking. the cost of insurance is yeah. uh, often thousands and thousands yeah. a day.
2: I think he was joking. Yes. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll tell you the story. So, I mean, we'd, we'd just been... we just gotten grabbed by... Um, by, by police, uh, the police force in Egypt, and this is what at a time in the Egyptian revolution when, when Western media were getting heavily intimidated, there were a lot of them being kidnapped, a lot of them were getting abused and, and, and beaten up. Most of it was the American and the British journalists and, and also journalists from Al Jazeera. Yeah. So I got yanked out of a cab one day and was basically frog-marched down to this makeshift police station alongside James, my cameraman. And, um, Shouting out, I'm, an, I'm a was, New Zealander. Uh, well, I thought I, yeah, I, I thought I was in trouble. I thought I, I'd seen the pictures, and I thought oh, yep. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in some strife here. Um, so they walked us down. It was a really dark, it was a shoddy-looking police station. It was underneath a bridge. It was dark. It was a small area that was that was surrounded by a tarp. It was right next to the Nile, and I was looking at that, going. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might seem overly dramatic, but I thought you know, a lot of problems have been solved in there. Yep. Um, so, uh, so there was a bit of, bit of intense negotiations going on for a short while, but, uh, but their mood lifted when, when they were convinced that I didn't work for CNN or BBC yeah. or Al Jazeera. Yeah. And uh, they say, I said, they said, where are you from? And I said, Aust- Australia. Australia? I said, yeah, kangaroo. <laughs> it's amazing how often that worked. Didn't work for Peter Gresh. No, no, it didn't work for Pete, but uh, but it did for me on this day. And and their sort of mood lightened a little bit, and uh, they tossed the uh, our um, passports back to us and you know, told us to bugger off. Um, but you know that, that I forgot what the point of that was. But uh,
1: do you feel down the track? Yeah, that with the best will in the world, journalism organisations, media organisations, information organisations are not going to be able to oh, okay. put that sort of investment yeah. into it.
2: Well, I was very lucky in that I had a boss, um, Darren Wicks, his name, and he never said no, never said no to a mission. Yeah. He believed in news. He believes yeah. in, in not just domestic, local coverage, but also international coverage. But th- there's inevitably going to come a point where, the, where it's tightening, and it is tightening. You know, you're seeing newspapers, yeah. you know, pull the purses yes. in quite a bit. That's happening in TV now. Channel 10 network in Australia doesn't have any correspondence anymore. Um, 7 and 9 do still have a few, and of course the ABC does as well. Um, but they're both so,
1: all tightening themselves.
2: Yeah and, and all, yeah, and so so they're having to second-guess trips. Um, the big trips they'll still go to, but the, the, the borderline missions will probably more often than not um, be pulled back on. And they're also relying more and more so on on freelancers um, who might be over there so they don't have to pay for the, the long flights. Um, so freelancers are, are already there and, and, and that can also help plug a gap too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, the news business uh, is, is, is changing uh, because people are digesting news in a different way. It's, it's all on the phones now. People aren't rushing home to watch the six o'clock news like they used to. I mean, the numbers are still good. It keeps us all employed. But um, we're being forced to change the way we deliver the news. And so, so all of this comes into play, you know, and I don't have the answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know where it's going to end up. But, you know, it's, I, I, hope, I hope that it survives. I feel like people will still want good journalism from good journalists.
1: Yes, I sometimes fear, though, that a lot of good journalism may disappear before it's reinvented, if you know yeah, I Yeah, no, well,
2: maybe, may yeah, maybe. But I feel, you know, we're so lucky here to have such a free press as there's places overseas where they do not have that, you know, in the Middle East and Russia there's, you know, there was, there was a stat that I use in the book about over the last 10 years there's been 20 um, journalists who've been rubbed out and have been killed and only one person um, mm. has been brought to justice for it, mm. you know, for one of those journalists.
1: Now there's, before I throw it open to general questions, there's one thing I sort of want to raise to you, which we can do more or less in club or in private here because there's not very many people here and they're all sort of thing, but the 60 Minutes episode Mm. in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. it's sort of something that runs across the fairly hard-edged nude stuff but you've you've flirted a little bit in that field yourself. You've worked for 60 Minutes, and I'm sure you're not embarrassed in the least bit about it. No. But it's news as entertainment, mm-hmm. as opposed to news with a hard edge that you really ought to know mm-hmm. about it. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts about that.
3: Um,
2: well, on this partic- partic- with particular reference to well, the I Lebanon mean, incident. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's ha- it's hard for me to give uh, give give. Um, the inside running, so to speak, yeah. on this particular story, because I wasn't on it, and, uh, and, and the, the people who were on it I know, and they legitimately wanted to help this lady who, who's not having any luck uh, getting her kids back. So we were the last resort, I suppose, um, but there's, there's a whole chain of command uh, that it needs to go through, and uh, you know, this is, this is a story that I definitely would have had reservations about, and a lot of journalists would have, um, but you know they decided to go through it anyway, and, and they got in trouble. But you know, then with respect to that story choice, it's it's been done before. Um, you know, Ray Martin came out uh, in defence of it uh, not long after it happened and said he'd he'd done it in the eighties, and uh, there was one that Liz Hayes had done one that hadn't even gone to air, that won't be going to air. Um, but you know, they won't be doing it again, you know, yeah. because they got it was they were bruised too much. Bruise too much over it, you know. Um, it was just, they just got a few things wrong on that one. And but
1: it bruises an organisation, the organisation for which you work, yeah. and it bruises journalism quite a bit mm. as well, as does this whole interface problem, mm. you know, that, that an increasing amount of television or broadcast. Is more about entertainment tabloid, than tabloid stuff.
2: Yeah, but ta- I mean tabloid. I mean it does hook people in, um, yeah. which is the whole point of it, I suppose. And but tabloid's not a new thing. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. And let me tell you, I've li- lived in Britain for a while, uh, our tabloid journalists are, are no patch on the British tabloid journalists. You know yeah. <laughs> the stuff they get away with. My God. Yeah. but it's. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, some sometimes I found it entertaining.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. I might uh, yeah. throw it open for questions if anybody's got any. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Anything we think we want to throw. Yeah. To? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
3: your role um, as a journalist trying to be fair and.
0: Mm. that gives you to advocate a particular topic
2: area or something that you feel is very important that needs so that's that transition from journalist to,
3: yeah. to advocate
2: um you know what I, I have on a number of occasions thought about doing work for doctors without borders um, because i've seen them in so many different places around the world um starting with the haiti earthquake and um I was just so blown away, and I remember thinking then, if, if, if my work as a journalist came to an end, then I'd be very happy to... You know, I don't have a, 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 any training in medicine, but I'd love to do some work for them and help them out somehow. You know, the work that they did, and I think about it all the time, um, and, and Haiti was an earthquake, you might remember, in 2010, where the death toll was 250,000 people. You know, it was, it, was, it was stuff that I think about every day, and... Um, And, and, you know, these doctors and this agency, and there's a lot of other aid agencies who do great work, but this is the one that I paid particular attention to. And I thought, um, wow, you know, they've got nothing, they're having to operate on on kids with with no anaesthetic, and they're having to cut off limbs with plastic scissors that they've got to source from somewhere because the place is so wrecked, The, the runways and the airports are so badly damaged that, you know, aid trucks can't get in, planes can't fly in, so they're desperately trying to save these lives and it's and it's not just there you know the the wonderful work that the aid agencies do at refugee camps and uh around lebanon and jordan um that i saw you know it's just it's inspiring stuff to see these guys work in these places and they're putting their own lives in danger you know um and so yeah i mean i hope that answers your question if 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 what i'm doing now did come to an end then i'd be happy to try and go and do that
1: i might say in defense of we reptiles of the media, that aid agencies suffer from somewhat the same problem that (coughs) news managers do, and that is that interest becomes very focused on something, but the attention span is not long, and unless things are still going in, uh, the attention shifts to another crisis somewhere or another story somewhere. In a Haiti, in a Rwanda, in a natural disaster, an earthquake or something like that, keeping, if stuff is in the headlines, the aid money is flowing in that allows Médecins Sans Frontières or a CARE or a whatnot to be working. I've seen it at the other side of things that they have a similar interest, if you like, as the press in keeping things Mm. uh, in the public eye Mm. because donations, and Australians are very generous with Mm. donations or whatnot, but they dry up quickly Mm. when it's off the news. Mm. Mm, That's true.
2: Mm.
3: You mentioned the the dangers of being a journalist in the Middle East. Uh, I was just wondering what security you had. I'm guessing it wasn't the same level as CNN or Al Jazeera. No,
2: we have a... a, a, um, a, a number of ex SAS guys that we used to always call um, these guys who, who go into private work once they've finished off, um, you know, doing whatever they're doing. These guys have have a lot of expertise, um, but the rule is they don't go. Um, you might be surprised by this that they're, they're never armed. So if we go into these places uh, where you might want, you know, someone to be armed if you got into trouble, well, well they believe that they shouldn't be armed because if you get grabbed by by someone and they see one of your men with a gun in their pocket then, then they might accuse you of being a spy and then you're in a whole lot more trouble because it's already so tense. Um, so after those first few times in Libya when I tried to wing it on my own and I realised that you do need a security consultant there then, then we've got these guys that, we f- that fly with us so we go with them and what they're able to do is, is they're able to you know look out for us and if I'm shooting a piece to camera and they're watching the horizons, they're watching you know, buildings nearby, scouting for possible snipers and that kind of stuff. So, so they're able to offer some good advice. And, and they talk to their network of, of security guards as well. So you know, my guy, and I had a few different ones, would talk to his pals who do work for CNN or BBC and they say, well, what are you hearing? Where's good to go? Where's not good to go? So it's just an all. It's a good little network. And everybody kind of works together in those places. No one wants anything bad to happen. Um, so, so that's it's all about the sharing of information and um, and, and safety. Yeah. And then over here. Yep. Hi, um, I got two
0: questions. Um, the first one is, I know there are a lot of newspapers um, go to the front line to cover the stories already, such as New York New York Times and also BBC. So, how important do you think for us to also go to the front line? Um, the second question. So about the stories, like for the events that happen, you as a reporter, how did you see things differently from the
2: population, so the general public, or like scholars? Mm. Well, I guess we're able to see things differently by being um, on the front lines and, and going to those places where those other people don't go. Um to answer your first question, um, I always wanted to go as as far as I could because that was where. I felt the story was, you know, that is where the action was and that was where the best pictures were and, you know, as, as long as it was all right with my cameraman, I, I never did anything on my own. We always had a conversation about it um, before we went in and, and I said, if you ever feel uncomfortable about where we're going, if you feel like your life is threatened, then we stop here. We don't go any further. So it's always important to have that conversation. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have guys who, who felt the same way as I did, you know, that uh, you do have to put your life in danger uh, to, get, to get that story that you're after. Uh, but if you get it, you know, the result is, is fantastic, you know, um, if you do come away with something. And generally, you, you would if you, if, you, if, if you can get there. But a lot of people aren't comfortable doing that, and that's completely fine. You know, it's, it's up to the individual with how, how far they want to push it. Some people go even further than that, you know, they break through the front lines and, and do a whole lot of crazy stuff that I'd never have the guts to do. You know, good on them, but um, um, a lot of them go too far and, they, and they, they lose their lives for it. And that's not something that I was really prepared to do. I, I do like my job. I love it, but I'm not going to die for it, you know? it.
1: It does matter as well that there's Australian eyes watching it or at least yeah. eyes that know that they're acting on behalf of Australians in witnessing it mm. because if you just pick picking up agency copy or whatnot, it might mm. be generically all right mm. but is not really mm. telling the story to the audience and
2: there's, there's also a connection too i mean um, you know i was asked the other day about the importance of having um, australian reporters overseas foreign correspondents and there's a connection between an australian voice and another australian voice so if you're listening to an, an australian reporter um broadcasting from from somewhere overseas, you're, you're more likely to have a connection with that rather than someone with a British accent or someone with an American accent because, you know, it's, it's home. You
1: know. An Australian is more likely to know where the beer is too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true.
2: Um, I was at another talk recently where they talked about ISIS having uh, uh, one of their
3: senior um, officials was um, trained in the media. Uh, actually trained in the movies yeah. Uh, in terms of using that to tell a story and obviously governments have publicity and you know, spin machines etc. How do you cut through not feeling that you're representing or being yeah. channeled to a story yeah. because it represents a certain position?
2: The propaganda machine, yeah, not well. Uh, it was very irritating, especially in a place, uh, especially in, in Ukraine. Um, you were getting it from both directions there and um, and that, and that can be, it's, it's, it's it can be difficult to deal with because you know both sides are lying. But propaganda is a huge part of, um, of, of, of war, you know, and, uh, and I, I, would, I mean, those, those videos that you're referring to, they're such slick operations and, uh, and that's why they're getting such exposure because they're so brutal. And, and the more brutal they get, the more attention they get. And that's been a very successful part of the Islamic State propaganda machine. You know, the worse it gets, the more the world's going to respond in the hope that they've that we fire back because that's that's what they want, you know, because they want they want the end of the world, they want the battle of the end of the world. Um, so you've got to you've got to address it, you know, you've got to talk about it, but it's important to say, it, not take it for gospel when, when you when you're writing about it. You say, you know, this has come from their, you know, their 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 media wing, you know, so. And I guess the hope is that the viewer at home will know, OK, so take from it what you will. You know? Because they will argue that there's propaganda coming from, from our side too. You know? So you're you, you basically, again, you, you're reporting two sides of the story and sometimes it can be two sets of propaganda that you're reporting. So again, I guess you have one of each and then you let the viewer decide. Yeah, I hope that answers your question.
3: Kind of springboarding from what you were saying then and what you said earlier before, um, I like that you said, uh, no matter if you're causing a form of terror, like then you're a terrorist. In that kind of line, um, how do you think the media can prevent anti-Islamic prejudice?
2: Um, It's not helped by the fact that there there are these... uh, Islamic extremists causing so much damage at the moment and uh, and these days as well um, they can be influenced by social media um, and the public outcry um, and it's I mean I think it's important I think we sh- we've probably got to do more actually to, to just to calm things down um, um, about that I mean I remember what was the example recently with um, with the fella in Germany who killed ten or so people, um, I can't remember the, the German city. It was near a McDonald's, and uh, and all of a sudden it was um, people assumed that it was Islamic, it was an Islamic terrorist straight away before the facts were even known. And I was broadcasting at that point, and I was telling people, just calm down a sec. We don't know that we don't know the facts yet. You know, we might. I'm looking at this picture, and he doesn't he doesn't, he doesn't look Islamic, Islamic at all. Sure enough, he wasn't, and then and then soon enough, 24 hours after that story, it, it disappeared off the radar. You know, it's uh, it's not a story anymore. Um, but if if he was an Islamic extremist, it would be a story for a good a good five or six more days. You know, depending on on on, on a few different things. But uh, but that's the that's the way it is now. You know, and uh, and I think um, I, and I try and tell people, and uh, and there are a lot of people who do it too you know you just just don't don't report anything until until you know it despite the temptation to say something well, if it's on social it's media bad. you know yeah. that's, that's a social media has a lot of good and a lot of bad things and that's and that's one of the bad things
1: would we helped of course if we there wasn't such active repression of people going around like you know Andrew Bolt or something like that yeah. uh, David Lange and John sort of being unable to express their point of view except via columns in every Murdoch newspaper, their own sky television shows, etc., etc. So they're sort of continually being put down. We've had these spectre in the last couple of days. I don't know if you've heard of the great Box, Hall, Box Hill tax office um, plot against Australian democracy and our life as we know it. Um, the tax officers installed two squat toilets there in partial recognition of the fact that about 20% of their workforce uh, come from the Middle East or Africa or Asia. Well, Pauline Hanson thinks that this is awfully un-Australian and may be, in fact, the end of our civilization as Mm. we know it. (laughs) And it's a proof, yes, and proof that the Muslims are taking over. Mm. right? Well, you know, she may be right. <laughs> One last question, and I think we'll have to wind up. I think there's a question right at the back there. Microphone, yeah. Yep. Uh, two more. Yeah. Two-part question. Your decompression as you call it. Yep. That was a mild form of PTSD. Yeah. And were you given any assistance to deal with that,
3: or
1: was it
3: self-help?
2: It was self-help. Uh, it was only a mild form of it, um, and. Uh, and, and i was taught by the psychologist to um to to, to mentally compartmentalize a lot better um so i mean um, when i was on holidays all these images it was this time in 2011 i don't think i've said this story yet correct me if i have uh, but it was a big year um, and there was arab spring uh, back to back to back to back there was the terror attack in oslo there was london London was burning, the London riots. There was a lot of death and destruction, and I had this breakdown while I was on holidays in Spain. I had these images in my head of, of burning bodies, of, of rotting corpses, of bodies and body bags, of buildings on fire, of screaming children, of screaming mothers. And it was like this film was on repeat in my head um, for hours and hours and hours, and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it, so I had to go back to my hotel and I locked myself in there, and I was by myself. I locked myself in there for about 24 hours and my mother is a trained counsellor and she basically said to me, the, the, the mind is like a filing cabinet and without you even knowing it, it's storing pages and pages and pages of information and that includes sights and smells and sounds. And inevitably there comes a point where all those pages burst out of the filing cabinet and you have what you know is referred to as a, as a breakdown or a panic attack or a mild form of PTSD which is a I think what I have, although the the psychologist was was a bit ambiguous with that, but uh, I was told to go and see the psychologist, and she said to me, at that point, the two major stories that journalists see her about is Libya and Haiti, and I'd done both, and because I was living by myself, I'd come back from these horrible situations, and I didn't have anyone to talk to, so these images they just they sat in my head and they stewed, and I didn't do anything about it, and eventually, you know, I had a problem. And so I was taught how to compartmentalise and how to decompress, um, which is really important. Um, there's a scene in, in this great movie called The Hurt Locker, um, where the soldier comes back from, from Iraq and he's in the supermarket and he's trying to decide what, what cereal to get. It's a great scene um, because he makes these decisions based on life and death and he comes back into the supermarket and, and can't figure out what cereal to get. Well, it's true because you've seen all these these awful things, and, and it's hard to make a decision because it seems so insignificant. You know, it's it's just you just you just stand there. And I'm not basing my my, my, my comparison my, my experiences to, to men who've served, uh, but I had a but I had a you know a small part of it. And, and it takes days just to ease back into society and, uh, and it, it's, it's, just, it's important to recognise that. And I, I didn't know what was wrong with me sometimes when I came back from these places because I felt weird, it was too hard. But once I saw the psychologist, uh, I was told that it's, it's just taking the air out of the, the head. Basically, you're releasing the pressure valve and once that's released, then you can go back and doing what you're doing.
3: When uh, Hachet offered uh, Peter's book for this uh, event tonight, I went on and Googled uh, Peter to see something in his background. And if you're talking about the media and the tabloid or whatever, you could not get anything on the first two pages of Google, except for Peter's engagement (laughs) 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 And the Daily Mail has this wonderful picture of um, of Peter um, with a beard going down on one knee to propose to Sylvia. And although he didn't cover the royal wedding um, from his book tonight, we very, we'd like to pass on our best wishes for the engagement and the marriage. And also the fact that in the same article um, that Carl, his brother, said, he surely could have done, she surely could have done a lot better. <laughs> we couldn't have done any better tonight with the conversation between Jack and Peter on the role that has covered, the, and the human effects and how uh, result of that and also the technological changes that have come through in the reporting of wars and natural disasters. So I'd like you to thank them on our behalf.
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU_Events. events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.